Good morning, Cross Point. Good morning. Yeah, okay, there we go. It's good seeing you guys this morning. Kids, you can be uh, released. You'll see my beautiful daughter back there ready to show you uh, to the classrooms. And if the rest, if you will turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. So if you have your, your scripture journals, we also have these free back at the Connect table. Um, it's a great way of kind of following along. There's also a place to take notes side, either in your own devotion, walking through the passage, or uh, sermon notes as we've been uh, preaching through this book together. When we first started this book of 1 John together, we kind of talked that this was John later on in years. He's followed Jesus as a young man, but now he is an old man. All the other disciples have been killed because of their following and proclamation of the gospel. John is in exile on the island of of Patmos. He's writing to a church that he helped plant in Ephesus, right? And it's a church that it's wounded, it's hurting, and he's writing as a grandfather with, with love and concern to this congregation that's just walked through a crisis. They've seen people walk away from the church, walk away from the faith, and he's writing this poetic sermon to them. And And when we first started, I mentioned, and I just want to kind of remind us, because we're coming to the end today of one section, that in a lot of letters, when we're reading in the New Testament, they're kind of like in Paul's letters. We see these links of a chain, that it builds one point that's connected to another, that's connected to another, and it creates this train of logic, therefore, but, and, so that, Like you can follow these prepositions into this logical statement. But 1 John is different than that. It's not building this linear argument. Rather, it's called this amplification or circular. In the sense, if you imagine more like a flower, there's a hub with these repeating petals around the flower that enhance the beauty. And in many ways, it's like there's two flowers, two thoughts, two key themes that... John keeps coming back to again and again. So in chapter 1, verse 5, up through chapter 3, verse 10, which is going to be what we're ending, we've heard this theme in many ways, God is light, right? Like walk in the light as God is in the light, that He is the light in the dark woods. Light is not just a path of right and wrong that we follow, but we follow the person, the darkness is fading, it's passing away. Resist the darkness of false teachers as we follow the God of light. We are children of light. It says, so practice righteousness. We see this again and again. And so today we're coming to the end of that first section of God is light and what that means. Next week we're going to be uh, continuing then in chapter 3, verse 11. And then through 5.17, we're going to see the theme begin to change. God is love. And because He is love, how then should we respond and live toward others? But today, as we kind of conclude this first section in chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, it's a difficult section. It's going to be a hard section for many to hear and to discern what it means. Like, have you, have you ever been in the place where you've questioned your own salvation? Like, am I saved? Like, do I really love Jesus? 
Am I just pretending? Am I just playing the game? And if I'm really following Jesus, why do I still wrestle with sin? Why does sin continue to entangle my feet and trip me up? And we can hear the verses that we're going to hear today. You're going to hear things like, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. That if you keep on sinning, you've neither seen Jesus nor know Him. You're going to hear later, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in Him. You cannot keep on sinning because you've been born of God. And what happens is, is we hear these words and there's this internal condemnation. But I sin. I can think of last week the times I've lost patience, dishonored my parents, lied, whatever it might be. And we have stories and we hear that. And there's this internal condemnation. Then, am I saved? What is this saying of who I am? What is it mean and there are those who are weak and wounded in the internal condemnation in the external accusations from satan will make today's words just feel like yet another fiery dart on a wounded and weak heart and there will be a temptation to build a wall of protection like i can't take anything else i can't take another accusation i can't take another condemnation, and we'll want to resist hearing what God has for us today. Because we'll be tempted to protect our own hearts from another feeling of failure. There's others who, the posture of your heart is more of of pride and resistance. Like, I'm okay, I got this. I'm good enough. Don't come at me with all this be better stuff. And so, It's not out of woundedness, but it's out of pride that we have the same posture in our hearts of building a wall of protection. Like, I can't hear this. I can't hear this right now. This is, it's dumb. I'm doing okay. Leave me alone. And what I want you to consider this morning is what is the posture of your heart before we begin reading? Like, are you here and you're like, I don't know how I feel about this sermon. Just reading ahead. Just knowing what the verses are that we're going to be talking about today. I don't know if I'm ready. And I want to encourage you that as we begin, are you willing to lay your heart before Jesus and trust Him this morning? Because it is a difficult passage. But it is a beautiful passage. It, it, it has a hope that is infinitely more beautiful than what we could imagine. If we'll take the time to listen. And it will hurt. And it will be hard to hear in places. But this is God's Word. And are we willing to lay aside our defenses to hear what He has for us this morning? And so if you will, would you stand with me? As we read... God's Word together. <clears throat> Beginning in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 through 10. Let me pray and then I'll read. Lord, we come to You this morning needing to hear from You. Lord, I'm aware that these verses are hard. They're difficult, and yet, 
Lord, they are beautiful and useful for correcting our hearts, for leading us in what it looks like to follow You. So Lord, would You give us eyes to see, a mind to understand. Would You help our hearts feel both the weight and the joyous freedom that these verses have for us this morning. Lord, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. You can be seated. So what's the problem here? Like, what is it that John is addressing? What is sin? Like, we see this phrase over and over again. Make a practice of sinning. Practicelessness keeps on sinning. The works of the devil. And then it repeats again. Practice of sinning keeps on sinning. What is the problem that John is addressing. What is sin? Let me think. There's this funny video on YouTube. If you look it up, it's only about 90 seconds long, called The Honest Preacher. And it's this video of this young man. He comes up in this formal church. He's wearing a robe, and he starts to preach. And then he just sighs. And he's like, you guys! You guys! Sometimes you're bad. Don't be jerks. You're supposed to be good. And he just lays it into them. And I, I wonder, it's all this skit out of humor, but I think sometimes the danger is we think John is like that preacher. Like, you guys, stop being bad. If you're bad... You're a child of the devil. But if you're good, then you're a child of God. Be good. Amen. Like, really? Is that what John's saying? We can feel that. Like, if we're honest, in the passage we just read, we can feel like that's what he's saying. But is that what he's saying? The resounding answer is no. That is not what John is saying. So then the question is, what is he saying? Because what he is saying, in some ways, will be even harder to hear. 
in other ways, it's going to be more glorious and true and beautiful than what you imagined. So what is he saying? I think sometimes one of the ways that we minimize sin, that we, we define sin and we make sin seem less than it is, less severe, is we think about sin as just doing something bad. We do something bad, we do something good. If you do more good than bad, then we say, then I am good. But if we do more bad than we do good, then we say, I am, or they are, bad. Our actions is how we see our identity. In, in sin is merely what we do. And so then we come to a passage like this and we're like, well, I have to do more good than bad. And we minimize sin when that's how we see it. But I want you to look at verse 4 to see what it is that John is saying. Because the question is, who determines what is morally good or morally bad? How do you know when good is good enough? And when do you know that you've done too much bad that now it's unredeemable? Because we all live in this gray world where what is right and what is wrong is redefined. When good, is it good enough or is bad too bad? And then we come to verse 4 and look at what it says. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now you may be thinking, how in the world does that help? <laughs> right? <clears throat> but this lays it out beautifully. Look at that first phrase. A practice of sinning. The word here, to get technical for a moment, is hamartia in the original language. This is often used of sin, <clears throat> and it means to miss the mark is what this means. So you, you think about it. To miss the mark. Okay, God says, thou shall not kill. Oops. I shot a man in Reno. Like, I killed somebody. I've done bad. Or we say, I haven't killed anybody. I'm good. To miss the mark is God establishing the standard. But then we say, thou shalt not lie or covet. Thou shalt honor your mother and father. And it's like, oops, I missed the mark, the bullseye of what God has established, that he's the one who establishes right and wrong. And then the bullseye is that perfection that he establishes. But then what we do is we're like, well, by a greater degree than I missed. So I'm better than you because we both missed, but you missed worse. Right? And we begin to think about it in these terms. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, to continue missing the mark again and again and again. But then John links it to something here. Also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. He's equating these two ideas, and what is that? Because lawlessness in, in the original language is anomia. It, it means a defiant violation of God's moral law. What does that mean? John Stott says it like this. It is not just that sin 
manifest itself in God's law. But that sin is in its very nature lawlessness. Lawlessness is the essence, not the result of sin. So I realize I'm getting technical here for a moment. But here's what I want you to see, this equation, is sin is not just merely what you do. But there's a nature, there's this heart that is stirring out of where these actions come from. Jesus says it this way, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. It's like, list these things out. It's not just the action of sin. It is the lawlessness, which is also often translated throughout the New Testament as iniquity. Out of the position of our heart that is defiant toward God come these actions. This is what John is getting to. He's not just saying it's what you do. Stop being bad. Be good. As if what your actions define your identity. Where the harder truth comes is he's like, you do bad things because you have a bad heart. These are equal. It's out of a heart that is defiant toward God that we do bad things. Our actions come out of our heart. And this is where it becomes even harder. So now it's not just even a matter of be good, don't be bad. It's like my heart is defiant toward God. What hope do I have that anything good would come out of this? This in theological terms is what's called total depravity. Where it's not just our actions, but it's the state of our heart. And this is what Jesus is saying out of the heart of man. That God is the lawmaker. He is the one who determines what is morally right and morally wrong. And He says sin, that hamartia, breaking of the law, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, adultery, etc. All these things is what comes out of the heart. But the lawlessness of our heart, the iniquity of our heart, that nature of our heart, is where all of these things come from. The Bible often describes this like leaven that's been worked in the dough. I think of the same thing when it comes to sweet tea. Right? I drink sweet tea more than I make bread. And I like my tea very sweet. Like McDonald's syrupy sweet, like where it's thick with so much sugar, is how I like it. Right? That sugar dissolves in it. Kirsten? No. She'll she'll like get some sweet tea and then mix it with unsweet tea so it dilutes it some. But are you you ever going to get that sweetness out of the tea? You can dilute it. But it's always going to be there. It's dissolved and mixing. It's not like you take a sip and you're like, that sip was sweet. And you take another sip, unsweet. I need to get to that sweet part. No, the sugar dissolves into everything. And it's the same thing with our hearts. Of what it says, sin has saturated. It's dissolved. It's it's saturated every aspect of who we are. So that every sip, every action out of our life is tainted by sin. Here's why that's so critical. Because if we don't understand the nature of sin and what John's talking about, then we're not going to understand the basic for why Jesus even came. 
Why did Jesus appear? Why did Jesus come? What did He do? John is going to make these statements. This is why Christ appeared. And we're not going to understand what He's saying unless we understand the weight in our condition that's worse than we thought it was. But look at verse 5. You know. You know this. You know that He appeared in order to take away your sins. And in Him, there is no sin. Like, you know this. Jesus appeared to take away your sins. The penalty of our sins is death. A physical death. And upon which when we die, we would be eternally separated from God. For for the penalty, the wages of sin is death. It says in Romans 6.23. Sin is missing the mark, but Jesus was perfect. It says in Him, there is no sin. That He was without sin, and yet He took our sin. This is exactly what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And he's saying, look, you know this. I'm not saying anything no, new. I feel like to you guys I can say this. You know this. Right? You know that Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. So we said, okay, not only do I have a, a bad heart, but I've done bad. And I've tried to do good. But even my good isn't enough. But for these bad things that I have done, because of the condition of my heart, I deserve death. But Jesus took the penalty of my sin. But is that all? Is that all it means of why Jesus came? This is where it continues if you look at verse 8. He says again, and I want you to hear these words, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What does that mean? What works? This plural form, not just one work, but many works. Of our mind, of our body, of our soul, that Scripture says that that Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus appeared to destroy that. That Satan desires to undermine and deceive. John is saying over and over again, don't be deceived. Satan wants to call what God says is wrong. Satan wants to convince you, why is that wrong? It's actually good. God's withholding something from you. What God calls good, it's like, is that really good? Really? It's the same things when we think about our bodies, all creation groaning for the return of Christ. That our soul, our hearts corrupted by sin, saturated by sin, as though in bondage, in chains, locked to sin. And then it says, for this reason, Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. What is this? See, this is kind of the heart where I think like everything comes in focus. And I want us to see and feel this morning, this sense, what does it mean that he destroyed the works of the devil? 
The literal translation of this is to loosen the force, to render them not binding. John Stott the destruction was a loosening, as if these diabolical works were chains which bound us. Here's what I want us to We see ourselves. We do bad, we do good. I am good, I am bad. Right? This is how we see ourselves. And then we read a passage like this and it's like, be good, don't be bad. Jesus paid the penalty for my bad, now I'm just supposed to be really, really good. This is what we minimize the Gospel to. This is what we minimize sin to. But it is so much more. See, what it's really saying is it's not just that I'm, I'm bound. It's not just that I'm incapable. It's not just that I have chains around me. It's not just that I do bad and I do good. It's that my heart is dead. That I am paralyzed to run and walk in righteousness. And more than that, that I am bound and chained by sin itself. And the very nature of my heart is sin. But it's even more than that. It's that my heart is dead towards God. And it's like every aspect of me is defiant toward Him. And every good thing I do and every bad thing I do is pointed away from Christ. I am dead in my sin. There is not a breath, not a life. There is nothing. Every good thing is motivated by a defiance towards God. Every bad thing is motivated by a defiance toward God. That is my condition. And then Jesus appeared. And yes, He took away our sins. But He raised us to life. He gave us a new heart. He loosened. He destroyed. It literally means loosened what binds us. The chains and bondage of sin no longer entangle. The legs that were paralyzed are now strong and able to run in the freedom of His grace and righteousness. The heart that was dead and obstinate and defiant to God is now beating in my chest. Why would I pick up those chains? Why would I pick up that dead body to carry with me and walk in a way that is against God when He has set us free? This is the beauty of what John is telling us. This is the beauty of the freedom that we're called to walk in and run in. Of what it means then to practice righteousness. Not just to do righteousness. Not just to be perfect. Don't be bad. He's saying something altogether different. He's like, if you are a child of God, you have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer you who live. It's Christ who lives in you, who abides in you. You are His child, free from that defiant iniquity towards God. Walk in the freedom that He has given. But if you are still bound, if you are still held captive, not just in your actions, but in your heart, 
then it shows that you're still a child of the devil. What does it mean then to be a child of God? What does it mean to practice righteousness? The first thing is this. There's kind of three statements here I want us to to understand, and you'll see repeated throughout Scripture again and again and again. That because Jesus took away our sins, He took the penalty of our sins. That we're declared righteous because we are forgiven and covered in the perfection of Jesus. Like, this is our, what's known in theological terms, justification. It means that we stand righteous before God. It means that it's not, our identity is not in, have you done more good or more bad? Our identity is, I have been born again. I have been crucified with Christ and risen to life in Him. My identity is not based on my actions, but on Christ. And in that we stand. We stand in the confidence that how God views you is not based on if you've done more good and bad. Your confident assurance in your identity, what we stand in, is once and for all, when Christ died on the cross, He paid in full the penalty of our sin. And it exists no more. It is finished. And so to practice righteousness is to stand in that truth. And then we walk in it. This reality that He has destroyed the works of Satan. That what bound us, what entangled us, what caused our dead hearts to be defiant against God has been loosened. It's been destroyed. It no longer entangles our hearts. Those chains have been loosed. I have been risen to life in Christ. Ezekiel says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. Move the heart of stone that was defiant and He has risen us to life. Galatians when it says, I've been crucified with Christ. That dead heart has died with Christ. And we were buried with Him and raised to walk in the newness of life. Sin has lost its power. This is what it means to be a child of God. Sin has lost its power. Like, there's temptation. There's failure. Does it mean we're perfect? No. And if you think that's just me trying to soften the passage, look at what John says in chapter 1, verses 8 and verse 10. When it's like, look, anyone who says that they're without sin, you're lying. Like, you're not, it doesn't mean you're perfect. To practice righteousness does not mean that you'll never sin from this day forward. Will you fall into temptation? Yes. But are you bound by sin? No. We are free. We are free from the power of sin in our life. Why would you enslave yourself to what you've been set free from. It makes no sense. So we stand in our justification that Christ has taken the penalty of our sin. And we walk 
out our sanctification, that process of becoming like Jesus, yes, still failing, yes, still sinning, but free from the power of sin in our life. And so we can walk in the joy knowing that one day when Jesus returns and He fully defeats Satan, we will be free from all presence and effects of sin in our life. We will be free from the presence of all sin. Think about this. This is what John just said. We talked about last week. Beloved. Beloved, don't you know who you are now? Don't you know what you stand in? What you walk in now as a child? As God's children now? And what you will be, it has not yet appeared. There is something that still awaits us. That is when all sin is removed. But we will know that when He appears, we will be like Him without sin. This is how it's talked about Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. This is the beauty then of what it means to walk in righteousness. It doesn't mean perfection. It's not just telling you to don't be bad, be good. That's not it. He's saying you were dead. And now you're alive. You're alive in Him. Walk in the freedom as a child of God. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So stand therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You see it throughout Scripture over and over and over again. You're free. Don't surrender yourself back to the yoke of slavery. Walk in the freedom of a new life in Christ as His child. Romans 6, verses 6-8. through We know that our old self, that old self with the defiant heart, the lawless, iniquity of a heart, a nature defiant towards God, we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that that body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. This is the joy that I hope you feel. Like I go back to what was the posture of your heart this morning? Coming into this passage, where to the person who was prideful, to the person who was like, I'm a good person. I've done more good than bad. I pray that you feel the weight of these words. That your actions do not define your identity. But we were born into sin with hearts defiant towards God. I pray that the weight of that breaks through a wall of self-protection of self-justification. To see that our only hope is in Christ. Not just to, to be good, do more, do more, be better. Don't be bad, don't be bad. Is it enough? Am I good enough? Is my bad too bad? Where is that? 
that impossible situation that we place ourselves in. That this passage would break through that and see that it's something entirely different. More deeply wrong, but more infinitely beautiful. To the one who is weak and wounded and wondering, like, am I saved? Like, is it enough? Like, why do I still stumble? Why do I still fall? What does this mean? I pray that these words free you from the condemnation that if you're not perfect, something's wrong with you. I want you to feel the weight. It's for this reason that Jesus appeared. Because you're not perfect. And He paid the penalty for your sins. So stand in that truth. And walk in the freedom that you are not bound and held captive to sin. You will stumble and you will fall. And when you do, confess your sins and He is faithful and just to forgive you because He has already paid the price for them. And so you can come and confess and walk in freedom. You won't be perfect. And that's okay. And so I pray that to the person who is feeling beat down by just that pressure of I have to like get everything right and, and we know we've missed the mark and we feel that. I want us to feel the joy of this is why Jesus appeared. Our hope is not to be our own Savior. Our hope is in Jesus to be our Savior. This is why we sing. This is why we celebrate. Because our hope is not in ourselves. And thank God moments like this that like I pray that the Holy Spirit causes this to weigh on our hearts like as I close in prayer I just want you to consider like what was the posture of your heart that I had you consider when we walked in how does this word bring conviction where does it bring comfort it can be hard it can be technical there's a lot of information here but my prayer has been and continues to be that God would give our minds understanding and help our hearts to feel and experience its truth. That we would both feel the weight and our desperation before a holy God of not just our actions, but our identity. But that in that, we would feel the freedom in the joy that comes from knowing we were dead and now we're alive. This is something only the Holy Spirit can do in our hearts. It needs to go beyond just what we know. You know that this is why Jesus appeared. Do you feel the freedom to walk in it? That as you enter a new week, as you think about the sins that entangle you, to know that they do not cling to you because they've been destroyed. They have been loosened. And that you can walk in righteousness because Christ abides in us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You.
for your word, for hard passages like this, Lord, that can be difficult to understand, can be confusing. Lord, I thank you that in your word we see you clearly and we come to even know ourselves in our own desperate situation. Lord, I pray for those this morning who have viewed their life as a scale of good and bad. And Lord, I pray that you help them feel and know the desperation of their own condition apart from you. The defiance toward you in their own hearts that saturates everything. Lord, would you lead them to repentance, to turn from trusting in their own actions, to trust in Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who are your children now, the truth now, for trusting in you, having repented of sin, standing in your righteousness, and yet tripping and stumbling along the way, feeling the the doubts within and the accusations from outside and Lord, just feeling the weight of it all. Lord, would you lift their spirits, renew their spirits this morning. Help them to know the victory that has already been won. Help them to know what it means that the works of the devil have been loosened and no longer grip their hearts or their feet and help them to, to walk in the freedom that you have purchased by your blood. And Lord, when we stumble and when we fall, lead us quickly in humility to confess our sins and walk in the forgiveness that you purchased by your blood. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.